Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to this Textile Talks podcast. I'm Gail Cowley and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Ruth Clayton, who's a wonderful artist that I've known for many years. Just to give you a little bit of background on Ruth, she qualified as a graphic designer at Leeds Metropolitan University, specialising in illustration in 1986. She then gained a teaching qualification at Manchester University. She has spent many years as an art teacher working in both high schools and tertiary colleges. She now shares a studio with her partner, Stuart Gray, at Farfield Mill in Sebra, Cumbria, where they work, teach and sell their paintings. She specialises in watercolour and likes to try and capture the energy of water in all its forms, from crashing waves to babbling brooks and cascading waterfalls. She enjoys how water reflects the surrounding force of nature and all its colours and intricate patterns. And she also loves to paint hedgerows and undergrowth and uses many techniques to achieve the results she wants, ranging from cling film to rice. Hello Ruth and thank you so much for joining us for this podcast today. It's lovely to have you here. One of the first things that I'd like to ask is if you could introduce us to the techniques and materials that you use in your art. Uh, yes, I can certainly do that um, because I would class myself as a, a watercolourist um, but probably watercolour with a difference. Um, I wouldn't call myself a purist so, for example, a purist would you would never use white or black, um, and I do tend to use white. I'll even use pastel. I will use different inks, usually acrylic inks, which you know are, are, are waterproof. So, in, in a way, it's probably veering on the mixed media, uh, but I still class myself as a watercolourist because that's the medium that I've I love I've always loved and I love what the paint does if you allow it time to do its thing yeah so yeah so you know so watercolour pastel inks um and sometimes a bit of colour pencil as well I'm I mean I'm 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 by no means an expert with any of them but I've always found watercolour to be quite unforgiving obviously you don't take that view no I don't at all I do think that's a myth but I do think you need to know a little bit about the pigment so for example that is true it isn't very forgiving if you're using staining colours which means if you wanted to get something off your paper you can't you can't get it off but if you use non-staining colours you can very often just wash it right back to the white paper um, so it's far more forgiving than you actually think. Is it something that you would recommend somebody as a complete beginner to start with or, or would you think something else would be more suitable? I, I think it's as good as any other medium. I think you know what you know. So if you're taught how to use acrylic and then you try to use watercolour, you'll find that very, very different. Um, and if you get vice versa, so if you get taught to use watercolour and then get taught acrylic have a go at acrylic you'll find that very different so 
I do think it's um, all in the planning and understanding the paint, understanding the medium. And then to me, it's no more difficult than anything else. Actually, that's that's really interesting because I think it's the planning that um, on a personal level I've always had problems with because you have to work out where your lighter spaces have to be, don't you? And then either mask off or you, you sort of work in reverse to, to the way that you work with many other mediums. And to me, it's all in the planning. I think with maybe mediums like acrylic and oil to a certain extent and if you're out there and you're proficient in those mediums you might disagree with me but to a certain extent you can um, cover up some of your mistakes you can put light on dark and so on you can put fat over thin and all of that but with watercolour yes I, I would start off by assessing my picture I'll look at it and like you said I will think well are there any whites that need to be saved how am I going to do that? Is that going to be just painting around an area so that you leave the paper um, shining through, if you like? Or am I going to use masking fluid? Or am I going to lift off? You know, and then that means you need to know a little bit about, um, as I, I mentioned before, about whether your colours are staining or not. So I go through a process. I call it the P process, plan, experiment and apply. And I do a sheet. I do a sheet of all the colours um, that I'm going to use. I'll mix all my colours, get the colours I want, and then I will actually see if they lift, and then I'll label them all. So I go through that, even though I've been painted for many years, I never miss that stage out. And, and by lifting off, you mean sort of removing with a dry tissue or? Well, no, with a damp brush, really. You just get a damp right. brush and you just um, you just go over the paint gently, so you're not fluffing the paper up but you're literally just sort of moving the paint. And when it begins to move, you can then get a tissue and just take off any surplus paint, yeah. It's that planning process that I feel a little bit overwhelmed by when I think about watercolours. Um, I think acrylics, I feel a little bit more, because as you say, you can paint over. So if you make a mistake, you just go over it. But that planning process is interesting because it's what we always encourage our students to do, which is really, think about something before you're going to do it put it down so it's not quite as immediate as 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 i think often people think it might be not at all and you know a lot of people will think oh i can't be bothered but to be honest you'll save yourself a lot of time and a lot of materials because you can waste an awful lot of paint by making mistakes washing it off whereas if you just do that planning process first any mistakes you're going to make you're going to make in that in that time in that process mm. so that when you come to to do your final piece you pretty much know what you're doing you know you you know your color palette you know what colors will lift you know what techniques you're going to use you've tried them all out on a sheet beforehand yes yeah so you're obviously fully fully organized before you start to paint rather than um, mm -hmm. as I, perhaps i have done uh, during Definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so many people just jump in, even when I'm teaching sometimes I will, you know, it's all step by step and I'll say, right, mix your colours first, test your colours, I'll come round and you, your colours have got to match mine. And then there's still the odd person who's romping ahead and, you know, not mixing the colours and uh, and they, they always get into difficulty. I mean, I know that you, you did start your career as an art teacher, didn't you? I did. I mean, that, that must have been really interesting. But then, of course, you, you made a transition to working as a full-time artist. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I've worked in high school um, for a number of years and I ended up um, at Bolton School in the girls' division um, as a, a permanent part-timer. And my hours really depended, there were other two other members of staff in the department and dependent upon how many girls would opt for art in, in year 10 and 11 would depend on how many hours I got. So they would obviously have to fill their timetable and I, I got basically what was left. So every year it changed. And uh, there was one year really where um, I wasn't getting as many hours. So that's when I, I set up a, a small gallery in a in Cedar Farm Galleries actually in Maudsley. Uh, I set up a, a studio space there and started to teach adults. So I was teaching high school children for part of the week and I was teaching adults for the rest of the week. But then eventually, the year after that, I got more hours at Bolton. It all became a little bit undoable, well, undoable, if you know what I mean, there's such a word. It became very difficult and the two jobs together were more than a full-time job. You know, I had a decision to make and I made it in that, if there are any teachers out there, you'll know that that term between October and, and Christmas is really hard. Um, in our school, all our parents' evenings were then, you know, it's, it's, you're getting up in the dark, you're coming home in the dark. And, and that's when I, I just thought, I, I can't keep doing this. I made a decision that I had to choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. So I opted to leave full-time uh, teaching at the high school and to concentrate more in the studio. And then I was selling work alongside teaching the adults. It was still a bit of both. And then I just decided that I would change the balance and try and do more painting for me to see if I could walk the walk. And teaching became a little bit more of a, a backstage thing, really. That's that's how it happened. It was just mm -hmm. a, a natural process. It must have been quite a, a change from going from teaching high school to teaching adults. I would imagine all of that. That the approaches between those two different age groups must have been really marked. Am I right? Absolutely right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so different. You know, I mean, there's pros and cons with both, I would say. Uh, I loved teaching the children, don't get me wrong, and that's not why I left. You know, but to a certain extent, you could tell them what they should be doing. And if they were misbehaving, you could even send them out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you can't do that with an adult. Um, Oh, if you can, they won't be coming back the week. That's after. a shame, isn't it, really? <laughs> it is. There have been the odd occasion. I must admit, when I thought, oh, yeah, if, if I, with my teacher hat on here, they would be they would be sent to the head now. <laughs> for a good talking to. Absolutely. But then adults, you know, they're always so keen and so willing to learn because, you know, they're paying to come. So, yeah, very different, very different. But I love them both. Mm -hmm. Most of, of our students, of course, are adults. We do get the odd one that's a bit younger, but in general, they're adults. Do you find that they come with all their own hang ups? Because certainly we get lots of people that say, oh, I couldn't possibly draw, I couldn't possibly paint, I can't do any sort of art. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I had a pound for every time somebody has said, oh, I can't draw, I'd be a very rich lady. But it's mm -hmm. it's not about that. I've, I've spent many, many years defending my subject for one, one point, really, because that's, you know, sometimes when you're an artist, people don't think that that's a, a proper job. But also people seem to think that to be good at art, you have to be able to draw. And 
I mean, you will know as, as well as I do that that's not true. You could have a fantastic concept of colour or pattern or design. But it seems to be, yeah, I can't draw. I was told at school that I was rubbish. I've heard mm. that so many times. I mean, oh, yes, art I. teachers out there have got a lot to answer for in actual fact. And, you know, I lost my confidence years ago because somebody told me that I was rubbish and don't give up the day job sort of thing. So, yeah. 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 Confidence is um is really a lot of it, isn't it? It's that mm -hmm. it's giving them that that confidence that they can do it. I think once once you can over if you can overcome that with somebody, then you're most of the way there, I think. Yeah. Uh and to be honest, it, it, it's with children as well because this is quite interesting, is that um at year seven, I, I taught primary as well because um you know, I'd been asked to go into primary schools and, and teach young kids on occasions. And all, nearly all young children, maybe with the exception of year six, you know, if you ask them, who thinks here they're good at art? I would say 90%, if not 99 or 100% would put their hand up. But when you get those children at year seven at high school, if you ask them the same question, you'd be very surprised that very few will put their hand up. What happens? Ruth? Yeah. What happens in between those those years to make them feel that way? I mean, did you ever come to any sort of conclusions to what that might be? I think a lot of it is peer pressure. I think all of a sudden they, they are looking at what their friends are doing. Once again, what teachers say to you uh, and building your confidence. But, I, you know, I never really, I suppose it would be a good thing to do for a master's, for example, to try and find that out. But no, I... I just think it's to do with the age. They're getting to that age where they really are bothered what people think about mm -hmm. them. Very self-conscious. Uh, yeah, incredibly. And in fact, the very first, the first project that I would do with Year 7s, uh, I would ask that question and we would have a chat about it. And then I would say, right, OK, we're all going to do this now and everybody will be able to do it. Uh, there won't be anybody who's better than somebody else. And we would design our own Kandinsky, you know, Vasily Kandinsky was an abstract artist. So they would put a little still life set up. It could even be like the contents of their pencil case. And I'd say, right, we're going to draw that now. And you'd see absolute dread on the faces of, of, <laughs> of some of the kids. But then I would say, right, but you're not going to look at what you're drawing. So you're going to be looking at your still life and you're going to be drawing to the side or just just behind you with your pen and you're not allowed to cheat so it became mm. really funny it was good fun um, and I would go around and I'd be checking that nobody was cheating and we'd have a bit of a laugh and then at the end obviously you can imagine the sort of design that they would get particularly when you want to take your pencil off the paper and put it down somewhere else and you're not allowed to look at your paper but what they did get was this beautiful free abstract image which we then worked on we thickened some of the lines uh, we added color and then it, it basically they, they they came up with their own kandinsky design and that was always a turning point for for the children um because they all felt like they were on a level playing field really yeah yeah no i'm sure i suppose a lot of it depends on who it is that teaches you art and if they can draw something out of you that perhaps you don't see in yourself. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's sort of homing in on what that ch child is interested in, or that adult for, for that matter. And by the way, that Kandinsky 
project is on my YouTube channel if anybody wanted to have a go <laughs> at that. But it is, it, it, you know, like the child who is really switched off from everything. If you can find something that they're interested in, uh, whether that's motorbikes or whether it's fashion or whatever, and sort of go down that route and try and find something quite arty that's that's attached to that, then you'll build their confidence because they're interested then. And it's yeah. the same with adults, I think. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. sure you're right. So, I mean, you obviously went made that, that change from teaching at high school to teaching adults. Now it's been a, a, a little bit different again because it's been sort of very much about the gallery. So, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Wicker Fish Gallery? Yeah, now the, the, the word Wicker Fish, I'll, I'll tell you about that first. But, and I am moving away from that name a little bit, but just to tell you how that cropped up in the first place, hmm. um, just mentioning Cedar Farm Galleries again, I was there with my youngest daughter and, she, and she's what, nearly 30 now. So and she was about nine and we'd gone because they were doing a little workshop for children making wicker animals and Beth made a wicker fish. And we went for lunch afterwards and she was always good company. And she was saying, I think you should have a studio somewhere. And we, we talked about it. And, and then she said, I, why don't you have one here? And I'd never really, really thought about approaching them at Cedar Farm to see if there were any free studios. Um, and that sort of prompted me to go and ask the owners. And as it happened, the timing was perfect because they were just converting a new outbuilding called the Pig Barn into mm -hmm. four new studios. And um, Peter, who ran Cedar Farm, it, it was never first come, first served. He did look at what he thought would fit into the whole ethos of, of the place. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be put on a waiting list there. So I did say to my youngest daughter, if, if ever that comes off, then we'll call it the Wicker Fish because it was after having our little conversation. Um, and it's been the Wicker Fish for years. And my partner now, he is part of that. He's also an artist. But I've found that the two of us are really beginning to sort of separate a little bit because his work's very different to mine. And I tend to sort of work under the, the name of Ruth Clayton Artist now. So, but, the, but the gallery itself is still called Wicker Fish. So the physical gallery that people can come and visit is still called the Wicker Fish because there's Stuart's work in there and mine. But then you'll notice in there that there have got my business cards, which say Ruth Clayton Artist and Stuart's business cards, which are different. Mm -hmm. It's a really unusual name, isn't it? It's certainly yeah. one that sticks in the mind, I think. Yeah, and as I say, it was just because of that, you know, that day really it was a big turning point for me. And then it wasn't long after that that I, I left teaching in high school. So, uh, yeah, and I'm, a, I'm not quite ready to shed that name because I'm emotionally attached to it. But at, at some point I probably will just I have started to rebrand really with RuthClaytonArtist.com. All my mm -hmm. social media platforms are in that name. We do have a Wickerfish website, but I must admit I haven't been on there for quite some time. Um, I, I was actually on there the other day because I had a good laugh at the video that you and Stuart have done. <laughs> <laughs> Which if, 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 the, if the listeners get a chance to go on and have a look at it, it's great fun. <laughs> to do with the cake. The yeah. speed of it one, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now that was that was great fun. I thought that was smashing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I do think some of these little videos, you know, even on Instagram and, and doing reels and things is 
it's quite good, you know, once you get into how to do them and how to record them. And I've taught myself how to use iMovie and um, so I put little little movies together and it, it, mm -hmm. it speaks volumes really, doesn't it, a little video? It does. It, it actually tells you a lot about the person as well. It certainly says that they have a good sense of humour when <laughs> I watch that one, but it does tell you something about them. And I think when you buy a, a painting, an original, you're sort of, you're almost buying into that person really, aren't you? you? It's a little bit of them in a way that you're purchasing. That sounds a bit strange, but... No, um, you're right. You are right. And, and so many people have said this when, you know, when you are looking at your marketing, that word branding always comes up and I think, oh, you know, here we go again. But it's very true because if you have like a brand about what you do, people want to get involved in that. They want to know more about you and your life and how you go about it and what your studio looks like. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you, you are right with that. Absolutely. How, how, sounds, sounds strange, but how do you deal with the fame? I mean, do you Fame. welcome that? <laughs> do you welcome people that are sort of wanting to know more about you? Um, or, yeah, well, or... I, I don't have many um, followers on Instagram at all, and that's something, that's another issue, really. I think that's really difficult, um, more and more so these days. But I do have, I mean, yeah, I call them my groupies, which is lovely. <laughs> They've almost become friends because uh, we still do little bits of teaching up here, and people travel quite a long way to come. Mm. And then, you know, people do like my work and they, they sort of, you know, not everybody, but you have a following. Uh, and it, it's it's nice. You know, it's not massive. I don't want it to be massive. Uh, mm. I'm quite happy with with the way it is, to be honest. Yeah, so I haven't got really nice. big headed about it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it must take a huge amount of self-discipline to keep on producing work for sale because we tend to think of art or I tend to think of art I know certainly students do is something that you know, the, the artistic muse strikes and you just have to sit down and paint and it's a very immediate thing but of course if you're doing it for a living for a job an occupation then you're going to have to do that on a fairly regular basis how do you manage that whole um, creative process that you have to go through in order to keep pictures on the walls that people can buy? Uh, with quite a bit of organisation, really, I would say with, with my Bible, which is my old filofax that my mum and dad bought me when I was 40. I've tried to sort of um, use the online calendars and things, but I, I can't get on with them really to the same degree because I can't see everything just there when I want it. And it... And because throughout the year I work towards certain um, open art exhibitions, certain galleries take my work. And I have been caught out in the past because, you, for example, a particular exhibition you'd know would be starting in July. But then on the occasions I've forgotten that actually they want the work three weeks before that, mm. which means then you have to have them ready. Well, so you have to start painting that picture or whatever well before that. And that has caught me on the hop on many occasions. So, you know, I do have everything written down, like I have, I have a desk diary and like a year at a glance. And I will put in, you know, all the deadlines of when work has got to be started, when work has got to be um, submitted. And if you're, if you're successful, when has it got to be delivered? If you're not successful, when do you have to pick it up? There's all those different dates around one event. Yeah. Um, 
So that's how I do it. And really, another thing that I used to trip up, um, trip myself up with all the time is I'd see something in my diary and think, oh, oh yeah, um, you know, I've got such a such a thing on. And then somebody would ask me, couldn't you come and do um, a demonstration at an art society? And I'd look and I'd see it was free. But then I'd not look at the days before or the days after. So, you know, all of a sudden I'd find that I'd be running around trying to fit everything in because I've got one thing after the other, after the other, with no breathing space in between. Mm. So I do, I, I don't do that anymore. I do look at my diary and think, well, actually I could do with giving myself a couple of days after that before I do anything else. So it's quite a yeah. lot of planning. And, and in January, we tend to do that because just at the moment, I'm not working on anything, on anything. And this is the time that I do prepare that. I think about what I want to apply for for next year. And then I um, start, I get, I get a new diary. I get my new um, little things, inserts for the Filofax, Filofax, and then I'll start to fill them in. Yeah, and, and then you can see it all, and and that's the only way that I can keep myself on track, really. And at the moment, you would laugh in in the studio because I have nothing on my wall, because, and I've just got a notice saying, "Oops, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of work here." But, <laughs> but a lot of it is up at St Abbs Gallery at a lovely little gallery called Number Four, and mm -hmm. I have a little exhibition downstairs actually so upstairs in my gallery there's nothing on the wall but if you go downstairs to the to floor level two there's a little mini exhibition of mine so there is work in the building but not yeah. actually. um so I, I sometimes i just can't paint fast enough because i work big as well and then um, yeah so it, mm -hmm. it's it's always a, a challenge yeah. do you do you feel the pressure i mean because there, there is a pressure isn't there? if you know that you've got a an exhibition booked or there's a pressure to produce do you does did you find that actually inhibits your work yes and no if i'm organized and i start well in advance then i'm fine and it's not normally the work that will give me the pressure it will be all the admin it'll be the paperwork you know some of these galleries they'll they'll want you to do an artist statement or they'll want you to do x y and z mm. and they'll want you to send images and they'll want you to send it at a certain resolution and uh, that yeah. can that can promote a bit of pressure but the actual painting itself no i'm in my i'm in my happy place mm -hmm. there as long as i give myself enough time yeah I suppose it's lovely that you can still say that. Sometimes when we do something on a re very regular basis, we can get a bit fed up, can't we? Yeah. No, I don't think I'll ever get fed up of it's. You know, when people say this, it sounds, I don't know, it sounds a bit woo-woo when you say it, it's part of who I am. But but it really is. It's, mm -hmm. It is. I can't ever imagine not painting. And if I'm not painting, I'm knitting. If I'm not knitting, I'm needle felting. If I'm not needle felting, I'm doing something else. Because creativity is such a huge part of my life. Um, so in lockdown, I was never bored, you know, because I'd got a whole host of things that I've been wanting to do and I had the opportunity. Yes, I think I think yeah. for a lot of creative people, it was catch-up time during lockdown, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, because I've always wanted to write a book and I was writing a children's book and I started doing some illustrations for that. I've written the book. But, you know, I've lost, I've lost the book at the moment. It's somewhere in the house, but... Um, <laughs> So it just gave me the opportunity because I am a trained illustrator, um, but I don't do much illustration now. I work much bigger and much freer. Mm -hmm. 
And I think one of the reasons for that is that my eyesight is not what it used to be. Uh, now I wear very focals. I think that very close work is is quite tricky. Um, so that you know, I have developed this much bigger, freer style because of that. So, what would a what would a typical day look like for you? I mean, do you start to paint the moment you get up, or do you intersperse it with other things? How would that look for you? Well, I, I don't often paint at home. I try to keep that very separate. I keep my home, my home. Mm. I only live in a little a little house, and it would you know I'm not the tidiest of person when I'm working. I always clear up at the end. <laughs> before I start a new project but while I'm working you know I, I am quite messy so and I don't like to be surrounded by mess I'm, I, I, it gets on my nerves so I do keep it separate so it's working at the gallery so a typical day will be you know not getting up at a ridiculous time uh, I tend to sort of get little jobs done and I might get to the studio for about half 10 because that's usually when it's Farfield Mill where I have my studio mm -hmm. uh, in Sedbur and it, it opens at half past 10. So I usually wander around between 10 and half past. Uh, and then, yeah, I will pretty much start painting straight away, dependent upon who's in there and how much chattering I'm doing and how many coffees I go for. But we tend to knock off about four o'clock-ish, you know, so that's, but I'm not in every day. I probably three, four times a week. The rest of the week, I might be trying to catch up with marketing or, uh, you know, other jobs, really. Do you, I mean, I presume that you'll produce some pieces to sell, but then perhaps you'll have a commission from somebody. Do you prefer one or the other? I don't work for commissions at all anymore. I've had okay. many, many years of doing that and I hate it. There's a, that's fairly strong. There you are. That's, uh, that's honest, isn't it? Um, it just inhibits what I do. As soon, I don't know, it's really strange. Something switches in my head. It, you know, you look at that piece of paper and then if it's just a, piece, a painting that I've just fancy doing, it'll flow. As mm. soon as I know that I've got to do a painting for somebody and they know what they want to see, immediately I've got a block you know it's mm. it, I'm inhibited from that I've, I'm not doesn't mean to say I haven't done commissions I've done hundreds of commissions but I don't enjoy them yeah. and and I've pretty much got to that stage that I thought you know I'm getting too old now to be doing things I don't want to do and I don't enjoy doing uh, so I do a painting and if somebody likes it they'll buy it yeah yeah no I can I can I can understand that because in a way you're almost you're painting something through someone else's eyes almost, aren't you? Which is hard, yeah. it's hard to second guess what someone else might want. It is. I mean, I have done them and there are some that I, I've, I've caught, you know, I do enjoy, but I've had some horrors really. And I'm not going to tell you them now because quite <laughs> oh, sport the sport. <laughs> because, because that person might be listening or those people might be listening. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a couple that which just would make you howl some of the things that people have asked you to do. And even like portraits, which I used to do years ago, they give you like a, a four by three inch picture with like the, the child would have a red eye. You know, and I think I'm a painter, I'm not a magician. So it, <laughs> it, it, I have, you know, people do expect an awful lot. And I've never had anybody who's not happy with the commission. So it's really quite a recent thing. I would say this last year, year and a half, I thought I'm not, well, let's put it this way. I'm not going to advertise that I do commissions. If yes. somebody asks me, somebody I know, and I think, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that, then that's a different thing. Mm. But if it's, I don't advertise it at all. 
yeah yeah no i can understand i mean how much obviously i suppose when it all comes to the end of it it's great to enjoy what you do that's wonderful but at the end of it 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 has to have a price tag put on it it's going to be sold and you know we all have to eat don't we so how do you work out ruth how how much to charge for something i mean i know this is something that our students tend to struggle with they you know they they do something they perhaps they they knit something they sew something and then they find it really hard to know how to pass on the cost of their labor can you give us any insight about how you tackle that i will but i will say it's incredibly hard it's really difficult i think it depends on the sort of person you are as well i'm i could sell somebody else's work better than i could sell my own uh and there's all sorts of different ways of doing it. And for years, people used to say, oh, you're not charging enough. But then I used to come up with things. This is when I was living in, in near Chorley. I would say this is Chorley, not Chelsea. And I do yeah. think there is an element of that. I think, it, it, you know, it depends where you are and where you're selling your work, uh, you know, as, as to what sort of people are going to be coming and looking at that. But then I, I did have to come up with a way of working it out. So I do it by square inch, really. I measure the length by the width. And then I will, you can times that by 1.5 or you can just do it by one or whatever. But that would give me a starting point. And then I can look, then you can add the cost if you frame and all the rest of it. But then I would look at that piece of work and think, does it appear to be worth that or not and for example if I use a big a1 frame but I've done a painting that pretty much is all in the center and it it bleeds out almost like a vignette mm -hmm. then in a way you could say well it isn't an a1 painting it's probably an a2 painting with a lot of air around it and a lot of space mm -hmm. so I would actually just measure the actual artwork bit so i'd measure the a2 bit and i would and then put it in an a1 frame so but that gives you somewhere to start you know lots of people do it in different ways but that that's been pretty good for, for Stuart and i it, it does it gives you a baseline and then you can think mm, no i think it's worth more than that or actually i think i should just bring it down a little bit and then of course you've got to think about commission you know on top of that which it is a big headache for people selling in galleries, even in our gallery here. I mean, Farfield Mill has lots of other art studios. And if I'm in there, then I can sell direct. But if I'm not in there and somebody comes along and buys a piece of work and takes it to reception, then they obviously will have a, a, a commission. Yes. So you, you have to work that out. So once you put your commission on, then look at it and think, oh, gosh, that's, get, that's getting a bit too expensive have I got any leeway uh, and to me that that's the way I do it I'm not saying it's the perfect way I, th I think it's it's finding something that works for you isn't it if it works mm. generally as a rule then that's got to be useful yeah I would say so, so. commission is some, is one of those controversial things isn't it because obviously all galleries will charge I'll put a different rate of commission on and I think we've all been there when someone, you know, there's been a gallery opening, maybe an opening night or something like that. You can hear people going around and saying, oh, well, I won't buy it in here. I won't pay that commission. I'll go straight to the artist and see if I can oh. get it cheaper. Yeah, you do get that. And there's, there's nothing that annoys me more, really, about people 
trying to barter as well i've had that i mean yeah people do approach the artist direct and then that means the gallery misses out really but having said that if they've got a piece of artwork in there i think as, as an artist i would say well if you want it you'll have to buy it from the gallery but if it comes back to me at the end of the exhibition and i still have it and it hasn't been sold then maybe we can have a conversation yeah that's different isn't that, it? that is different yeah. but yeah. i remember um a few times where there was this one chap I remember in particular I won't say where and he kept coming looking at this particular piece of work and he kept saying what's your best price and I wouldn't budge and I kept saying well no that is the price oh okay because there's somebody on the other side over there and I really like his work as well and I can't make my mind up mm, and I thought no I've got to stick to my guns here so I said well I can't help you with that and uh it kept coming round and I became, I became quite irritated because you wouldn't barter with a solicitor or an electrician or a, people feel that they can do that. Anyway, just to sort of tell you how the story ended, I stuck by my guns and then I was beginning to weaken because it was getting nearer to the end of the day and I thought, oh, maybe I should have done that. At least I'd have had a sale. When this really lovely gentleman arrived and he just looked at it just for a few minutes and he said, I'll have that. And mm. so I, and he said to me, um, it was a personal thing for him. I once again, I won't, uh, I won't say exactly because he'd written a poem basically years ago, and he wanted a, pe a painting to actually depict his poem. And he'd been looking for a long time. Oh, how and, lovely! And mm. my picture satisfied that need for him. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad that you've got it. And then he you sent me a lovely photograph of it in situ above the fireplace. Uh, so yeah, I do think we have to stick to our guns, really. Mm. And, and because another way of, of pricing your work is, is the amount of time it's taking you. You know, I mean, particularly with textiles, you know, the hours. I've got a very good friend who's an embroiderer um, and, you know, hours and hours and hours. And she probably doesn't get a good hourly rate at all. It, it, it's very difficult to actually uh, to actually price your work. I think sometimes people that I, I, I've known have found a way around actually selling the originals. You know, um, they'll photograph something really well and maybe make cards out of it and that mm. kind of thing. So there are I know, ways of, of offsetting some of the costs. But yes, it's it is, you know, it, it, it certainly is quite a time-consuming thing to do. But of course, so is what you do. You must sort of, I suppose they must all feel like, well, not quite your children, but you must like to see them go to a good home, I imagine. Yeah, I, I do. I do. And when somebody comes and say, oh, I love your work and, you know, it, yeah, that you do get quite a buzz from that. You know, I, I don't mind letting them go. Otherwise, I'd be surrounded by work. But it is nice to think that it's going to somebody who really appreciates what you do. Yeah, so, no, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure. Yeah. So what, I mean, when you actually do your, your, your planning and everything for the, for the year, do you, do you set yourself a theme or um, how do you decide what it is that you're going to paint? Well, if you go onto my, um, my website, my ruthclaytonartist.com, you will, you will see that it's pretty much all C seascapes because that is my ultimate passion i do like painting hedgerows and trees and that sort of quite loose nature sort of paintings but my real passion is painting the sea but when i say the sea i don't mean a calm sea it's the energy of the sea i'm totally mesmerized by the ocean 
And in fact, we have a little caravan up in Scotland, which is right on the coast. And that's my inspirational, happy place where I can go, you know, on my own or take my dog and just do work up there. But I love, and I suppose it, it, my work is slightly changing because, because as an illustrator, you basically were picture making. So I'm slowly moving away from picture making and looking more at the textures and, and the techniques. And it's becoming slightly semi-abstract. And I was looking at the textures in water. So, and I love that. So that's pretty much what I do most of the time is, you know, it might just be one big wave rolling over or it just might be waves crashing against some rocks, or it might be waves crashing against a lighthouse. I very often have a structure in there, whether it's a boat, a lighthouse, a rock. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's usually all about the, the water and how it interacts with that building. Water has a very challenging reputation, doesn't it? I think it's one of the things that most artists would perhaps look at and say that was perhaps one of the more difficult things you could choose to paint. Yeah, but I think if you allow the paint to do its own thing and you you don't force it, then the watercolour particularly will do beautiful things. For example, if you have a damp wash next to a wet wash, then the wet watercolour will slowly bleed into the into almost dry, damp watercolour and you'll get like little tendrils and beautiful things will start to happen. And, it, it, you know, and you see that in the sea. Mm. Um, and I do use uh, white pastel at the end because that will give that lovely foam and spray. I do flick with white paints. I do use the acrylic ink bottles, but I use it straight with the dropper. And I, mm. just, I just sort of almost scribble across the bottom to get that real, um, well, energy, as I've been saying, you know, that real vibrance and turbulence of water uh, and I've, I've worked at I've been doing it for a long time so I've sort of and I do use cling film which is fabulous if people are wanting to start with water because if you just wet your paper put your colour on and then lay some cling film on the top and scrunch it up a little bit whatever pattern you see is the pattern how it will dry and then mm. you take your cling film off and that gives you a starting point you know for the patterns it's really interesting to hear you say that because actually as you, as you were talking uh, then I was just thinking about asking you if you had any particular materials that you preferred any any particular um, makes that you preferred or and then you you sort of talking about cling film it's just it's it's almost <laughs> yeah. from you know that the, the the really sort of art shop expense not expensive but you know the the, 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 yeah. sort of the proper stuff through to through to something that you can do very very cheaply yeah I, I mean when I'm talking to people about materials and how to start off I keep it as cheap as I possibly can uh, so like a, a paint palette of, of colors you you can make an awful lot if you mix them so you I, I usually in fact in most of my paintings I use three or four colors but then they will mix together to create other colors so I keep it as simple as I can. And also I don't use really, really posh brushes. I don't use sable because mm. I don't like the thought of it to start off with. But also it's um, I use acrylic because, but they are good acrylic brushes. Um, yeah. They're a company called Pro Arty. And I'm just used to what they do. So when they bend over, they'll spring back to a point where a sable won't do that. So it mm. is what you're used to. 
but it does save a lot of money. So for example, a size 12, which is a reasonably big brush in Pro Arte would be about eight pounds. Whereas in Sable, you'd be talking about 80 probably. Oh yeah, no, they're really expensive. Yeah, mm. and I, I don't think it's necessary. I really, really don't. As long as you can get the best quality of the acrylic brushes. And, and I also use student watercolors as well. You know, there is quite a lot of snobbery about some people are very precious about what they use, aren't they? You know, it has to be this this yeah. make, or it has to be, as you say, sable. Or they, they, I think actually it's a similar thing, really, in textiles. Some people get very concerned or very hung up on their on their um, tools and equipment, their materials, yeah. and and sometimes it doesn't. You can, I think, you can almost get more involved with that than you can with the actual end. And job, be it be painting or be it embroidery. Well, it, it's that it's that saying, isn't it? All the gear, no idea. Yes, <laughs> very true. It, it is. You and I have had people come to my class and they've got all this fantastic gear, but you need to know how to use it. And if actually you could just take a quarter of that and you'd get good results. Uh, so I don't think you need to break the bank. And yeah, I do use cling film. I use salts. That does fantastic things for watercolor if you allow it to do its little patterns and. Um, I use rice. I put rice on it. That's really wonderful for like hedgerows and things like that. So, you know, they're things that you just find around the house. And I use four brushes. I've got a palette of about seven colours. I use one particular paper. It's just really cheap and cheerful. I know what it does. I know how you can lift watercolour off it. It's just Bockingford. Mm. Um, and I never really vary from that. I don't, you know, I just think I know what that does. Now, I have treated myself to some Daniel Smith watercolours, which are lovely. Yeah. But, and are, but I, are they the actual um, pans or are they in a tube? And always in a tube because I, I don't use pans. I only use pans and half pans when I'm going out working, just like little sketches. Because if you think about the little squares or the oblongs, which is the full pans, it, and if people go and look at my work, you'll see that the, the I'm not a delicate watercolourist. I, I'm quite bold. I would mm -hmm. never get enough paint out of that palette to create what I create so I have to use the tubes and and then the pans are just just for illustrative work and sketchbook work and going out and painting yeah so yeah. but then I have treated myself just to a few uh, in fact I've put some on my Christmas list and things like that on birthday list and but really just the bog bog standard student watercolor Windsor and Newton or Dale Rowney have stood me in good stead for donkey's years yeah. absolutely yeah. And of course, you get to know what you're working with, don't you, after you do. a while? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, the ultramarine of Daniel Smith, I don't like as much as the ultramarine of Windsor and Newton um, student colours, you know, because and it, it's because it's so different, because mm. that's another thing, different, you know, different colours and different brands will be different. You know, a, an ultramarine in Windsor and Newton is so different to uh, Daniel Smith. So you've got to really try them out and see what they do. Yes, yeah. And I, I know that you have, I think you've been working with a charity as well, haven't you, for mm -hmm. um, for the sea. Would, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's not one particular charity. I tend to look at lots of different ones, but I'm really quite quite concerned about our planet. You know, I was watching Frozen Planet and I watched all of them. And the last one, you know, I, I, I won't lie, I was in tears looking at what, you know, what's happening and, and what we're all doing. Mm. Um, you know and rising sea levels and why that's happening and the pollution in the sea uh, so I thought well if I can somehow highlight that through my artwork 
by donating, I don't know, 10, 15% of, of a sale to a particular charity. So I do look at lots of different ones. I look at small organizations that are um, trying to come up with ideas of how to clean up the ocean to, to Greenpeace and, and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I want to sort of have more documentation by the side of my artworks, sort of, you know, without getting too political and, and on my high horse, but I, I just want to try and highlight it and make people more aware of, you know, the impact of what what will happen if yeah. the sea rises as it as it is at the moment. Mm. Yes, I mean, I think we're we're going to see a lot of changes, and most of them aren't going to be for the better, are they? Over the next few years, absolutely not. And it's it's a travesty, and it's, but you know, you and I, we can only do what we can do in our own community and in our own house. It's the big corporations, etc., and you know Westminster who yeah. need to perhaps do more but we won't get into that but you you know I, I just do my bit I do what I can. I think it's wonderful that you do and and obviously having such a, a deep connection um as you as you uh, obtain with painting something do you do you usually paint from life or do you take a photograph and paint <laughs> later how, how does that work? Well if you look at my work it would be incredibly difficult to paint from life I would have to be what, what was it Turner said that you'd have to be strapped to the mast of a, of a ship <laughs> and I really would have to be in the crow's nest up there because of the, the sort of paintings that I do to get that close I mean I did go to Uist um, a few years ago with Stuart and he was really worried about me because I was getting closer and closer because I was looking at the sea through a lens Mm. and getting photographs and he, he almost wanted to put like a lead on me and uh, <laughs> you know because it was really windy as well up there mm. uh, so I do take my own photographs but then I do look at royalty free photographs because there's a there's a lot out there that you can get but I'll yeah. only ever use that as um, an initial idea I will change the colors I will include a lighthouse I will just use part of it I'll zoom in I'll incorporate it with my own work. It's only ever a starting point. So would it would it be fair to say that, that very often your work is a sort of an amalgamation of different views rather than one particular one? Absolutely, yeah, you, mm. you hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, lots of different views from different things. And I might have one image that I think, oh, I love the colours of that. It doesn't necessarily need to be a seascape either. I can just look at a landscape and think, actually those colours would look lovely in a seascape so I'd use that for the colours. Mm. I might look at one particular wave shape but then I might look at a boat or at some rocks and then I will try and put the whole lot together. Yeah that's I, I, I just find that that amazing I can't actually quite wrap my head around how I do that. <laughs> Years of practice I'm sure you're going to say. Possibly, <laughs> Possibly. yeah maybe. Yeah. I think it's it is quite I mean we, we can all imagine a scene because we we have it unfold before us but to try and take a few different scenes and amalgamate them in that way I think it's just so skillful I'm in awe. One thing I can't do it's a real mental block is if I'm looking at an image I can't paint it in reverse I, I have to reverse it on my printer mm. you know think oh well th that wave actually would look much better if it was coming the other way I can't just flip that in my head I would have to print it out the other way and then look at it that way um, I just that's an absolute mental block I don't know whether that's the same for everybody else but I can't do that <laughs> well I'm, I'm, in, in a way I'm sort of quite glad to find there's something you can't do, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, do. I would just have stuck with trying to put the, the different ones together <laughs> have you have you ever had sort of anything 
funny happen while you've been out painting or um well not actually when I'm out painting because usually you know I try to keep myself to myself when I'm doing any sketching or anything and mm -hmm. I don't interact with people but there was one little story um it was after I'd started a class and I was telling everybody about the materials and I said you will need watercolour paper don't just use cartridge you will need the real McCoy and that, that weekend and they've got my phone number and one of the ladies rang me up and she said Ruth I'm here in the middle of the art shop and I've got this pad of watercolour paper but it says not watercolour paper <laughs> now to explain to people um, who don't know about that Watercolour comes in three different surfaces. It comes in hot press, which is smooth. It comes in rough, which says rough. And then the one that's in between, and it's the weirdest title, is not N-O-T. So not watercolour paper actually is watercolour paper with a slight texture. But she was looking at this really confused, thinking it says it's not watercolour paper. <laughs> so I was saying, no, it's, no, I was saying, that's okay. It's, it's not watercolour paper. Yes, I know it's saying it's not. So this, this conversation was quite bizarre. So then I just sort of explained, no, it's watercolour and the texture and the word not means that it's actually slightly textured. So that was um, quite confusing. Yeah, because um, there are a lot of different watercolour papers out there. Oh, yeah, some there are, are. Some are very, very um, expensive, some are not. Yeah. And I've been and I've been caught out because I, I bought myself a really beautiful linen type paper, and I did a big tree on here, and I thought, yeah, and I've got it all planned out, and I but I didn't do a little sheet first, so there lies you know there lies a, a tail, mm. and I thought, well, I'll paint that, and then I lift out quite a bit of it, and I did this painting, and it would not lift off that paper, and I was using the identical paint, so yeah. the, it was obviously the paper, so different papers react to paints as well. So, you know, you do need, when you do any testers or any planning, you need to do it on the same paper that you're going to be working on. Do you, do you use a particular supplier? I, I don't mean in, in the respect of Winder and Newton or, or something like that, but I mean, do you, do you use a small local shop when you're looking for supplies? I do, yeah, and I, will have a, yeah mm. and I will have a shout out for Ken Bromley, Ken Bromley in Bolton. Um, I've used those for years and years and years. And they were a family-run business and they moved different premises. But I get all my paper from there. I don't buy my paints, etc. I'll give another shout out there for, um, mind you, this, this company is wholesale, but it's Abacus Resources and they're in Carnforth. And once again, they used to supply seed of farm and they approached me when I moved up here and sort of said, well, we've got this new little business now in Carnforth and, um, you know, would you like to try us out? So I, I tend to buy my paints and my brushes from Abacus mm. and I buy my paper from Ken Bromley's and then the, the Daniel Smith, wherever, you know, usually I'd get other people to buy that for me. Uh, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it really expensive? Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I haven't heard of it, I'm stuck there. That's my ignorance. In, in, incredibly expensive. But there's one colour there which is called Lunar Blue and it's just phenomenal. It, when you mix it, it looks like a, a mucky grey. Then it, it separates in the palette, actually. You've got to keep mixing it up into like a turquoise and a deep blue. So on the page, as it dries, it separates and the two colours come out and it's just phenomenal. Yeah, mm. but it's mm. it's not cheap, no. No. But, but no. good quality. No, well, you know, I always think it's, again, whatever craft area that is your, your chosen area, um, 
I, I think it's worthwhile paying a little bit more if you're able to. I know not everyone yep. is because the pleasure really increases, doesn't it? If you can use something that's really lovely to use that you love the effect of, it makes such a difference to your experience and actually working with those with that medium or that 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 um that yarn that that thread whatever it might be yeah you're right um you know and i was talking before about it doesn't have to be expensive and it really doesn't but it is lovely to add to that so if you have a birthday or something like that or you want to treat yourself it it is really nice to think oh that looks like a really beautiful color or um, i'm going to buy a ceramic palette you know even that because mm -hmm. i tend to use like i don't use a small palette that they're called flower daisy palette so they've got quite big wells but i just use the plastic ones but you know if you want a treat you can buy a beautiful ceramic one and and it is nice to do that but it, it's not absolutely necessary you can you can do really successful work with relatively you know cheap equipment well mm. not cheap but cheaper equipment mm. so somebody once said to me buy the best that you can afford and i think that's a pretty good that's a good yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good rule of thumb it and is. i know sometimes if you not that not that I, I generally do but sometimes you'll go around aldi for instance or little and they have some of these things you know some very cheap art yeah. supplies i've yeah. never tried but i imagine they'd be quite hard work if you ever try yeah I, yes i have <laughs> um, and the works is another one and i'm not knocking the mm. works but they have some brilliant stuff in there but a rule of thumb if you're buying watercolor paper if you look at these pads and if it's got texture on one side in a pad and on the back of that paper it's smooth then mm. don't buy that that's not been that's not been made properly it's not been pressed yeah. it's, it's just basically a piece of paper that's got a little texture on one side and, and nothing on the other um fine for for practicing and, and playing with but when you start in earnest you, you do need to the, be, buy the best that you can afford, mm. but usually the equipment isn't great. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can well imagine. Ruth, it has been, uh, I can't believe that we've been talking over an hour now. Hello. It has been an absolute pleasure um, to okay. have you here and, and to chat to you. I mean, obviously, we've known each other now for a long time. We have. Um, yeah. And um, it's always a pleasure to chat, but it's really nice to be able to share with the listeners that that um that I, i've always loved chatting with you and, and and obviously i know we we've talked many times about how you instill confidence in people to do be it textiles or be it art so i really hope that um that our talk today will have maybe inspired one or two people yeah just do it you know it's mm -hmm. it's stop talking about it just just have a go <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know but thank you very much for inviting me gail i'm very honored to to be on this oh, it's podcast. been an absolute pleasure it's been yeah. a pleasure thanks Ruth. thank you